see clearly, and we'll read about this in Ephesians here in a minute, is that the purpose of the armor is it gives us the ability to do just that, is to stand. It's to take a stand against the enemy, to take a stand in our lives for the, in those areas that the enemy would want to try and bring defeat, to undermine us, to, to lie to us, to get us off track. And so that the emphasis here is standing, and, and Paul, of course, uses the image of a soldier. Uh, it would have been a Roman soldier, given the time period that he wrote this, this letter in. Uh, but they were familiar in that time with the Roman soldiers and the fact that the Roman army and the Roman Empire had taken a stand and had advanced all throughout that world. 20% of the population of, that world, uh, of the world at that time was under the authority of the Roman Empire. And so everyone was familiar with the Roman soldier, the, the legionary, who would take their stand, take their stand in the midst of opposition, take their stand in taking Uh, taking ground and moving forward. So let's read this together out of Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to be starting in verse 10. The words will also be up on the screen if you want to follow along there as well. It says this starting in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with a breastplate of righteousness in place. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all of the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This morning we'll be focusing on our feet. We'll be talking about our feet being fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Of course, and we talked about this last week, and just as a reminder, Paul's overarching theme and his purpose in writing this letter is essentially teaching the church on how to be the church. It's a, it's a manual, it's a, a guidebook to say to the church, it, it, when we talk about this, this body of Christ, when we talk about this group of people, of course, not being a place, the church is not a place, the church is a people, Paul's instruction here is to the church, this is how you be the church. This is how you live out being the bride of Christ, being the church that he's called us to be. And the thread that is sown all the way through the book of Ephesians is this, unity. He talks about unity more than anything else in the book of Ephesians. The unity of the spirit, that we need to be united to God, and the unity of the body, that we need to be united as the body of Christ. There are five major themes that he touches on through the book. I'm going to touch on these really fast. First was this, God's ultimate purpose. That God has an ultimate purpose, that he's, he is working a work, that he is doing something, uh, that, that, that the reason that the church exists and the reason he established the church is because he is in control and he has a purpose for our lives. Paul touches on the fact that Christ has to be at the center of everything we do. He has to be the central person and the central uh, anchoring point in our lives. He talks about the fact that we are now a living church. Again, not a, a place, but a people with Christ as the head of us. He talks about the new family of God, that we are called into a new family and a new kind of relationship with Him and with each other. And then he finishes before he gets to Ephesians 6, with Christian, Christian conduct and living. And just practically, how do we live our lives? He talks about husbands and wives. He talks about slaves and masters. And, and in our context would be uh, an employee-employer employee, relationship. He talks about parenting. Right? He talks about all of these aspects of just how do we live our lives for Christ. So last week, we looked at the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness. The first two of the, of the pieces of armor that are listed here in Ephesians 6. I wanted to mention this last week, and, um, and then we'll jump into the, our feet being fitted with uh, 
with readiness this morning. But when it comes to the breastplate of righteousness, one of the things that was, was always true of that breastplate, because it was uh, either made out of a heavy leather or, or metal, um, you wouldn't just put it right on top of your skin. There was always an undershirt that went under that, that armor uh, that would serve as a barrier and kind of a place of comfort. It would stop from, uh, you know, any kind of rubbing or, or, or irritation to the skin. And, uh, you know, in Scripture, in Isaiah, it talks about the fact that we need to put on a garment of praise. Put on a garment of praise. And uh, I, I didn't touch on this last week. It was in my notes, and somehow we, we skipped over. But I wanted to back up a little bit. You know, you might even wonder, why do we sing praise in, in church on Sunday? And why do we start with worship? Why, why is it we start with singing? Because it, in essence, what it is doing is preparing us, we're putting on a garment of praise so that we can then move into a place of warfare. And you see in the Old Testament for the Israelites that praise always preceded warfare. There was singing because it reminds us as we declare who God is. It's your breath in my lungs, so I, I call out your praise, I sing out your praise and I'm reminded and the people around me are reminded of who you are and how awesome you are. And so praise always precedes warfare. And so in this picture that Paul is using of the armor, that the breastplate of righteousness is always preceded with this praise, this garment of praise. And I love this. When you put on a shirt, what do you do? You lift up your hands, right? Right? You're like, especially when you're a little kid, hey, let's put your shirt on, put your arms up, Right? And, and I just, as we were singing this morning, as we were lifting our hands, and of course I'm standing up here so I can't see you, but I know people were lifting their hands, right? And I just imagined that God was clothing us with a garment of praise so we would be ready to receive the armor that he wants to bestow on us today. So be encouraged by that, and we're going to jump in to the next part. So covered and talked about the fact that the Roman Empire was, in that day, was unlike any empire that had existed. It, it was huge, and they ruled absolutely uh, between three and 400,000 full-time soldiers and about 300,000 non-Roman soldiers uh, who were called auxilia. I'm not going to revisit all of that history. If you want to know more about it, you can, if you weren't here last week, you can listen to that online. Uh, on the podcast or check out Wikipedia. There's lots of stuff on there as well. Um, but there was a lot of benefits that came from a Roman soldier. But because of the vastness of the kingdom uh, or the empire of the Romans, uh, the picture that Paul uses in, in talking about the armor would have been absolutely familiar to everyone, especially in the city of Ephesus, because Ephesus was such a key trading city. It was a, a crossroads. And so there were people from all over the world in this place. What I didn't touch on last week was this. The Roman Empire really kind of changed the way that, that armies functioned. You know, you've, you've probably seen movies or pictures of the, the, the soldiers showing up on a battlefield, maybe like the medieval times, right? And, and you've got one guy who's got like armor, and he's got a big old sword, and then right next to him is a dude with a pitchfork, right? And, and, and the, the armies were kind of like that. They were kind of like ragtag, and it was like, just grab whatever you have available and show up because we're going to have a fight, right? And so it was like, again, everything from a pitchfork, right? You know, I imagine some dudes out there with a hammer, and then there's a guy who's got like the full suit of armor. Well, the Roman Empire changed all of that because they started standardizing their training and their equipment. So that the Roman army that functioned in Britain was the same as the Roman army that functioned in North Africa. It was the same as the Roman army that would have been in Ephesus. And so they standardized this equipment, which really serves our purpose as well. Because it, as we start talking about this armor and the way that Paul is describing it, it would have fit in any of those contexts. It would have been very familiar. They were very well organized. And, and they were equipped with the latest and greatest. They had the best of the best. There was no other army like them, and it came all the way down to and included what they wore on their feet. They were pioneers in the realm of military footwear. So I want to talk a little bit about a different kind of footwear, um, kind of build a little 
bridge here, if you will. Any basketball players in the house? Right? Oh, you can own it. Anyone? Okay, how about this? You're like, what do you mean by basketball player? Anyone have a basketball hoop in their front yard or have a basketball down the street and you like to shoot hoops, you don't consider yourself any good? Okay, a couple more people. Um, I used to play basketball in high school and, uh, and it was fun. I was not any good, but it was lots of fun. And uh, it's been interesting to watch the evolution of the basketball footwear over the years. This, uh, this picture right here is uh, the first all-American basketball shoe, the Converse, actually invented in 1907 by Mr. Converse, who was his name. And uh, anyone have a pair of those? Not like that, probably. It was revolutionary. In fact, of course, they show on the bottom, they show the tread. Why was that important? Because, because it was revolutionary. We've designed this tread pattern on the bottom of this shoe that, what does it say? Non-skid. So when you're out on the basketball court, so I, I played basketball in South Africa in high school, which we play international rules, which was really different to here. And we, we didn't have, uh, it, it was a new sport to the country. And so uh, our school, we played in an old Air Force hangar that had been converted into basketball court. So it was a super smooth uh, concrete surface, and in Africa, there's this red dust. If you've ever been to Africa, you know what I'm talking about. It's just everywhere, and it's super fine. Well, there would be this layer of red dust on these basketball courts, and you'd be dribbling up, and you'd stop, and then you'd slide like four feet, and it doesn't matter what you were wearing, you know, and of course, they're calling you, and, it's, and you're like, oh, come on. So non-skid is important in basketball. Well, of course, the shoe didn't stay this way. Then it became this, what we now, now know as Chucks, right? Your Chuck Taylors, your Cons, your Converse. And there's probably more than a few people even at church today wearing these very same shoes or something very similar to it. In fact, I saw Lynn, Lynn earlier was wearing her Chucks. And so, uh, um, but here's what I know about Chucks. They're, they're, they're more of a fashion statement now than they are a practical basketball shoe. Right, you don't see people. At least people who are serious about basketball wearing a pair of these. Now, I was serious about basketball, so I had a pair of these. Yeah. <laughs> Reebok pumps. Come on, did not help my game at all, but I looked incredible on the court. If you're not familiar with Reebok pumps, they were revolutionary. You put these high tops on. Of course, they had the support around your ankle. But then to add to that support, you pump that little basketball right on the top, and it would inflate the shoe around your foot. Revolutionary, right? Absolutely amazing. Reebok changed the game. And if you play, if you play basketball today, this is probably what you would wear, something like this in Air Jordan Right, which these shoes are not cheap. They are also a fashion statement, and people buy these and spend thousands and thousands of dollars on the collector's items. Uh, you can get a pair of these for about $190. Um, but if you read the description on Nike's website, they talk about how flexible it is, yet providing support, and how light they are, and they, how they breathe, and how the, the tread pattern is a certain way, and what the materials are that it's made out of. Right. So we're not unfamiliar in our context with, with shoe wear, with footwear, uh, that, is, that is technologically advanced. So as we talk about the Roman soldiers today and we talk about what they wore on their feet, consider, I mean, we're gonna, I'm going to show you a picture in a second, and you're going to go, oh yeah, that's not like this. But, but imagine this, what we're talking about, what Paul was addressing in regards to having your feet fitted with a readiness this is what they would have been thinking about, and it would have been absolutely cutting-edge, revolutionary in that time. So Paul says that we are to have our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. A couple of terms in there that we need to unpack. First of this is feet fitted. Feet fitted. Now, you understand this. You might not think about it on a daily basis, but you know this, that you need your feet to go places, right? You might not think about when you get up in the, in the morning and go, God, thank you so much that I have feet today that I can, I can walk, right? We just, we just get up and we walk. But we have feet, and our feet make it possible first for us to be able to stand and then to even be able to move forward and go about 
what we need to go about in our day. And so Paul addresses, he talks about that we need to have our feet ready. And, and by the way, like, honestly, when I've read this before, I've thought, you know, the gospel on the feet? Like, that's just kind of weird. Like, the feet just seem so unimportant, right? And plus, it's that your feet are at the, like, they're down in the dirt. We get that feet are dirty. Like, you ever had your kids come into the house? The other day, it was raining, and, and we're coming into the house, and Megan's like, stop! There's a towel, dry your feet, right? Because you're tracking in all that mud and all that water. Any other, any other moms relate to that? You're like, don't go tracking through my house with all of that mess. So feet are not exactly glamorous and, and fancy. They're very utilitarian and functional. Yet it's the feet that, that, that Paul ties together with the gospel. It's important to have the right footwear as well in the right time, right? You need your feet to be outfitted or fitted with the right shoes. So if you're going out to a formal event, you're going to get your really nice shoes out. If you're going to go, you know, work in the yard, you're not getting your nice shoe out. You're going to shoes out. You're going to get your junky shoes, right? Your old shoes, the old the old tennis shoes that have no more tread left in them and right? I have a pair of those in my my closet that they're falling apart, but they're perfect for, you know, using in the garage. Paul then says that our feet need to be fitted with readiness. Well, what is readiness? Readiness is just this. You need to be prepared. You need to be prepared. Readiness is not fumbling around in the moment trying to figure out and try and get things together so that you can move forward. Again, the picture here is a soldier who is ready for battle, right? An ineffective soldier is one is when, when the attack happens, goes, oh man, where's my stuff? Where are my shoes? I, I'm not ready. In fact, you would go so far as to say that that soldier would be a dead soldier, right? Because they're not ready. They're not prepared. Uh, when I was in high school, one of my best friends uh, was training to be a firefighter. He was already a part of the fire academy. His dad was a fire chief. Um, and my mom actually worked at the fire station as a secretary. So we used to hang out at the fire station a lot. It was just cool, right? In high school, I'm like, I'm hanging out at the firehouse. It was, it was really neat. And I remember one time, Mike and I were at the fire, fire station, and the alarm sounds, right? And the tone comes in, and, they, and in, in like 20 seconds, those guys were gone. They were out the door. And, of course, you've, you've seen the picture of the bunker gear or the turnout gear where they have, like, their pants rolled down and the boots are all kind of ready, and they're just sitting there. And, and those fire, firemen come, they have the, the black boots, and they have a zipper on them, and they, they pull those off, and they jump into their, their gear. And, and in seconds, they're in the fire truck and out the door, so much so that him and I were just like, whoa, that, that happened really fast. This is the picture that Paul is painting. We need to be ready. Our feet need to be ready to move, to go, to, 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 get, to jump into action in a moment's notice. And then he talks about the gospel I'm setting this all up so we can have a deeper conversation about uh, Paul's deeper point here. What is the gospel? The gospel is this. It's the good news. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, we were created in the image of God. We were created by him in his image, and he is a loving, relational God. We've said this in our church over and over this year, and we're going to keep saying it. It's all about relationship. It's all about relationship, and he is a relational God. It's about relationship because he's modeled for that. But sin entered the world through disobedience. And because of that sin, there was a break in that relationship. There was a separation between us and God because he is a holy and perfect God. And, and, and sin prevents him from being able to have the kind of relationship that he wants us to have with him and him with us. Not only that, sin caused us to be enemies of God. The Bible tells us that because of sin, we were enemies, enemies of God. That's, that's crazy to think about, isn't it? That you were an enemy of God because of sin. The good news is this, that Jesus, sent, Jesus came, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to be a sin offering for us, to forever break down that separation and that wall that had been built between us and God so that we could be reconciled to him and be in right relationship with him. The Bible tells us if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is the gospel. 
That is the good news. And this is what's amazing about this. The good news is for everyone. It's for everyone. And, and, and it's a gospel of peace. Why? Because we were once enemies of God and now we are in right standing with him. And, and, and here's the other thing. The good news, the gospel doesn't affect just our eternal standing with God. It affects every part of our lives. Your relationships, your health. We, we are a four-square gospel church. You might be going, well, what's four-square gospel? It's this, that Jesus is our Savior. He's our healer. He's our baptizer. And he's our coming king. That he affects every part of who we are. That Jesus wants you to be healed. He wants every part of your, your life, not just physically. He wants you to walk healed, made whole. This is the gospel. It's the good news. It's the gospel of peace that allows us to move forward and drive us forward into the destiny and the purpose that God has for us. And if you know, if you've read the New Testament at all, you read the writings of Paul, the gospel was central, absolutely central to Paul's message because his life had been changed. His life had been transformed. He was the least likely candidate he was the least likely candidate, yet because of the love of God, because of the love of God, and because the gospel is for everyone, he had received that, that gift of being made whole, made right with Christ. And finally, peace. You know, we have a skewed perspective of what peace is, don't we, in the world? We talk about peace, right, envision world peace. We want, world, we want peace in our lives, but, but essentially what we're saying is we just want there to be an absence of conflict. I just want the fighting to stop. If there could just be peace, but we know this, that, that just because there's no fighting doesn't mean that there's peace, right? If you've ever been in a home where there's been an argument and now two people aren't talking to each other, that doesn't mean there's peace in the house, right? And you feel that tension, and so just because we're not fighting doesn't mean that peace exists. It's not just the absence of conflict. We have to look at the word that, the way that Paul did and the way that those in, in, that he was writing to would have understood it. And they would have understood both the Hebrew and the Greek definitions of this word. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. Shalom, which in, uh, in the Jewish culture, in the Jewish Faith is their greeting in the Jewish language, in the Hebrew language, is their greeting. Their greeting is, I speak peace to you. In, uh, in Greek, it's the word Irene or Irene. This is what, and this is a quick list of what the definition of peace would be, especially in that context. First, it's this. It's a freedom from worry. Freedom from having to worry. Anyone ever struggle with any kind of worry and fear? Right? <laughs> Not everyone raised their hands, so I'm, I'm wondering, we all, we all together, right? If, if you never worry, I want to have a conversation with you, because I'd love to hear about that. We all struggle with things that we worry about in our lives. It's defined as salvation. Peace is defined as reconciliation, as deliverance. It's defined as prosperity, security, success, welfare, intactness. I like that. That things that were broken and, and, and torn apart, peace brings those things together and causes them to be intact. Peace is health. Peace is completeness and wholeness. And all of these things would have been a part of the definition of what peace was for Paul and for his audience. So not just the absence of conflict, but all of these things encapsulated in what the gospel of peace was. I had said before, the gospel touches every part of your life, and this is how it touches it. All right, so that's the, the setup. I, I know I said finally, and some of you are like, what? That's, it's kind of early for that part. I've got three points I want to make this morning. Three points. So then we've kind of set that backstory. Have your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Your feet are important for moving. That readiness, be ready to go in a moment's notice. The gospel, the good news. And peace, all of those things I just talked about. All right, so we ready to go? We good? All right. First is this. We have a peace with God and a peace for, from God. Now, I'm going to put those together in one point. 
because it's, it's this, this two-way street with, that we have in our relationship with God. So we have peace with God and peace from God. Peace with God, why? Because we were his enemies and now we're not. That means that there's a peace that we have with him and he's the one who initiated and fulfilled that peace for us. We're no longer his enemies. Amen? Hallelujah? You are no longer an enemy of God if you are walking in a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's something to be celebrated. Not only that, not only is it he's like, okay, we're not at war, so they're like, they're, there's this demilitarized zone between God and us. No, we, he then says we are his sons and daughters. We're his sons and daughters. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 through 2 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we've gained access by faith into this grace in which we now? Yeah, come on. We stand in this place of grace because we've received from God this peace. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. God gives us a peace that overwhelms and covers our lives. We were once enemies of God, but we have received from Him peace that allows us to stand not as enemies, but as sons and daughters, as heirs of His kingdom. That's amazing. We have a peace that He has given to us, but there's also a peace from God, not just with Him, but from God. Why is that? Well, because God gives us as His children a peace that governs our lives that we can have peace in our lives as we live at peace with God. So he doesn't say, hey, we're at peace now. Now figure out your life on your own. Good luck. Hope it goes well for you. No, he gives us everything we need, and it's covered in his peace. Jesus says this in John 14, 25 through 27. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give it as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Jesus declares over us, he says, listen, I'm and he's, of course, he's speaking to his disciples, but we read this for ourselves as well. He says, I have to leave. I'm going, I'm going to be with my Father, but I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. And I've taught you a whole lot of things while I was with you. But when Holy Spirit comes, he will remind you of what I taught you. He will bring those things to remembrance. And as he does, as you, as you walk through your life and you face trials and challenges and tribulations and things that oppose you and you get stressed out and you, you start feeling like you need to worry and you start thinking about your circumstances through a worldly perspective, not through a kingdom of God perspective, that the Holy Spirit will be there to minister peace to you and that peace is based on the words that I have spoken. My Father is trustworthy that He will provide and care for you, that He will be everything that you need, that if truth will govern your life, that you will walk with me, and you will be able to ask anything in my name, and I will do it. And all of these things that the Holy Spirit brings to remembrance, which is, again, why it's so important that we know the Word of God. Because when we know the Word, the Holy Spirit will remind us of those things that we've read. But if, we've not, if we're not reading it, it's not going to be in us. He can't remind you of something you don't know yet. The peace that flows from the Holy Spirit and strengthens our lives. Jesus also said this in John 16, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. Amen. No, come on. Right? You want to read that and you're like, hallelujah. But this is a promise of Jesus. In this world, you will have trouble. Jesus never said, hey, if you will follow me, everything is going to be cake. It's going to be easy. No challenges, no problems, no opposition, no persecution. In this world, you will have trouble. 
but take heart. I have overcome the world. I have overcome the world. This statement right here allows our hearts to be governed by the peace of God. That in every circumstance, no matter what we're walking through, that we can come back to a place and say, you know what, God, give me your peace. I don't see how this is going to work out. God, I'm not enjoying this circumstance. I don't enjoy what I'm walking through. God, this is trouble. God, give me your peace. And he is faithful to do that. So there's a peace that we have with God and a peace that we have from him. The next thing is this. We have peace with each other. There's a peace that we now have because of Jesus Christ. A peace that we have with each other. And Paul is talking to that church in Ephesus, and, and this is probably the major point for him. Because his focus is unity, and because he's giving instruction to the church on how to be the church. This would have been a major uh, emphasis for him when talking about having your feet fitted with a readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. See, his theme was unity. Unity. Unity in the church. Unity one with each other, brothers and sisters in the Lord. Why? Because it's all about relationship. We've been reconciled to God. You, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, if you've asked him to be the Lord of your life, you've been reconciled to God. The Bible says he no longer counts your sin against you. You've been justified. You've been made right. That is your standing with God, and you are in right relationship with him. But then he says, now be reconciled to each other. You've been reconciled with God, now be reconciled to each other. Stand in unity with each other. Be in right relationship with each other. It's in Ephesians that he highlights this. In verse 14 of chapter 2, Paul writes this, For he himself, speaking of Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two groups one. And has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God. Through the cross by which he has put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to, you, to those who were near. For through him we have access. We both have access to the Father by one spirit. One of the issues in the church in Ephesus was the fact that there were Jews and Gentiles. The two he's talking about. Those who were Israelites, the Jews, and those who were the Gentiles. Everyone else. And there was a tension that existed there. The Jews kind of going, hey, we're, we're God's chosen people, and we're more chosen than you are. And it led to conflict within the church during that time where, where people who were, had been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and stood in right relationship with God were at odds with each other. I'm better than you. I'm more advanced than you. God loves me more than he loves you. And Paul has to put his foot down and say, this is not acceptable in the body of Christ. See, because the goal of Jesus' coming was not just to reconcile us to God, but to reconcile us to each other. And in fact, there's a problem that arises, and he addresses it here. God has torn down this wall of hostility. Why would you think that you could be hostile towards a brother and sister in Christ and somehow still be in right relationship with God? It doesn't work. He's not, he's not addressing the world. He's not talking about those who've not yet come to faith. He's talking about us as the body of Christ. There's no room in the body of Christ for a lack of peace. We've been made one and we have access to the Father because of the Son. Listen to me, church. No one gets a free pass on loving people. No one gets a free pass on loving people. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what we've walked through and where we've come from. See, the gospel of peace compels us to deal with people the way God deals with us. 
The gospel of peace compels us to treat people and see people and honor people and love people the way that God has treated us and loved us and had compassion on us. See, he is graceful and compassionate and merciful and loving. And he says, now you live the same way. The problem is, is we justify, justify our behavior. We justify our behavior and we say things like, well, you don't understand the hurt and the pain that I've been through, the injustice that I've suffered, the, the persecution that I've endured, the unfairness, the greed, the hatred, the fear that I have walked through in my lifetime. And so for some reason, because of all of that pain, of all of that vitriol, whatever the circumstance, that I somehow, some way now have a pass on loving other people because of the pain that I've endured. Jesus says, no, that's not the case. In fact, he models it for us. See, Jesus was rejected, mocked, beaten, falsely accused, opposed by the church, betrayed, crucified, even his own community in Nazareth rejected him, took him out to a cliff in the city of Nazareth. You can go there today. Took him out to this cliff and wanted to throw him off. His own community wanted to kill him. Jesus endured so much, more than we really ever could imagine. Yet on the cross, his words are this, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Why? Because Jesus understood and was in himself the gospel of peace. Jesus did not get a free pass. You don't get a free pass. That, that, that does not mean that you diminish or downplay the pain that you've walked through. Hear me in this. In this world, we will have trouble and we don't just ignore and go, hey, I love trouble. Trouble's great. We walk through difficult things in our lives and God cares about those things. But at no point does God say, you know what? You've been through so much. You now get to treat people badly as well. Never happens because he doesn't deal with us that way. Paul's concern with the church is that they started comparing one another to each, you know, one to each other. Well, I've walked through this. And because of where I've come from, and because of my background, and because of blah, 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 blah. Paul says, no. Jesus has leveled that playing field. He said, you know what? You just get to love people. He'll do the work of healing. He'll do the work of restoring. But you don't get a free pass on loving. Romans chapter 12, verse 17 through 18 I've never seen this verse like put on a, like a decorative board on someone's living room, right? But maybe we should, right? You don't go to, what's a Hobby Lobby? Never seen this verse at Hobby Lobby. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Let me stop there for a second. What Paul is not saying is be a people pleaser. What he's saying is, you live in a way that is righteous in front of everyone so that they have no accusation and say, yeah, but you did that, right? So this is, it's, you can read this kind of two ways. He means this in, watch how you live so that there's people who have no accusation. Now, verse 18, right? Challenge you, write this somewhere in your house, put it up on the wall. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, Live at peace with everyone. I want to put those words up on the screen. As far as it depends on the offending party, the other person, my husband, my wife, my kids, my boss, my pastor. No, as far as it depends on you. Here's the thing about this verse. You can't get around it. You can't explain it away. There's no way to twist this and say, well, what he really meant was, no. What he meant was, as far as it depends on you. Live at peace with people you like. People who are part of your denomination. People who live in your, people that, right? Fill in the blank. No, with everyone. As far as it depends on you. 
that should challenge every single one of us. Because it takes away all of the excuses. And it puts it right back on us. I was sharing in prayer this morning. And this has been kind of the theme of my life. The thing that God has been speaking to me. Because as I go to the Lord and I complain about whatever. Lord, this person, that person. Why is this happening? This circumstance, this hardship. Wah, wah, wah. (laughs) And God just keeps saying these words to me. And it's driving me a little crazy. Yes. Yes, I see, I see what you're walking through. Remember, you're going to have trouble. Yes, but what about you? That's what he's saying to me. Yes, but what about you? Lord, this person, this circumstance, yes, but what about you? God, I want to feel bad about this. I want to be upset about this. Yes, but what about you? How are you engaging with the peace and the joy and the love and the strength and the power and the freedom, and the grace, and the mercy, and the compassion that I've poured into your life. What are you doing with those things? Before we have a conversation with someone else, or about someone else, what about you? How are we doing in those areas, and those places, as far as it depends on you? There, there is a key here for us, church. There's a key here for us that if we would engage with this, It would change the way church in America and church around the world looks. It would change our reputation in the world around us. It would radically transform the body of Christ. If we would take on the responsibility personally and say, what do I need to do? What conversation do I need to have? By the way, what he's not saying here is, hey, make sure you think about this a lot. And he's not saying this, go have a conversation with someone else about that person. Because that actually achieves the opposite. He says, as far as it depends on you, you go and you be reconciled. And there's tons of verses that we could read that back that up. You go and you be reconciled. You do the work. You go to your brother. You go to your sister. And if they're not receiving of that, come with, another, come with someone else who, who, who loves and trusts that person. But you do the work. Why? Because our feet are the things that carry us forward. The gospel of peace compels us to move in the direction of other people, not move away. See, our feet need to be ready to move towards reconciliation. Every single one of us. And then finally, the peace to offer to the world. This peace that we offer to the world. This last Friday was the funeral for Billy Graham. Thousands of people attended and even more tens of thousands around the world watched uh, the live stream of that service. There were services that were even held in honor of Billy Graham all over our nation. To honor a man who made it his priority to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with as many people as he could. The question had been asked, who will take his place? Who will take his place? Who will take, take the place of a man who lived his life for the gospel of Jesus Christ, who traveled the world, preached to millions, hundreds of millions of people, heard the gospel because of this man? Who will take his place? And the answer is this, all of us. All of us. We all have to. We, we, we must. We can't pray that God brings us another Billy Graham. He's brought you. He's brought you. He has you in your community. He has you in your neighborhood. He has you in his workplace. You don't have to stand on a stage with a microphone and preach to thousands of people. Preach to an audience of one. You have the gospel of peace, and God wants you to take it and share it. My life has been dramatically impacted by that man, by Billy Graham. 1974, Billy Graham went to South Africa and did a crusade. And he took a stand, by the way, because he refused at any point in his ministry to preach to a segregated audience. And so he went to South Africa during the days of apartheid 
with the condition that he would not preach to a segregated audience. And he got his way. He preached the gospel. My mom was in the audience. And she was pregnant with me. And she responded to the call, to the invitation. And she went forward and gave her life to Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful for Billy Graham. Because he's affected my life. And in, in, at least in, in some way, in, in, in part, and there's lots of other people and lots of other circumstances, but that was my mom's first response to the gospel. Because of that man, I'm here today. And more than that, not just here today, but I will spend eternity in heaven with my heavenly father. God's called each of us to be a Billy Graham Actually, he's called each of us to be a Jesus Christ because that's what Billy Graham was. He just pointed back to Jesus and he says, let, let me tell you about this God who loves you. Let me tell you about the good news of the gospel that you can be at peace with God. You know, he's, he didn't have a hundred different sermons. He essentially had one sermon that he just preached everywhere he went and it was the same thing and it never gets old. Because there's always people who need to hear that God loves them and has a plan for their lives and wants to call them out of their sin and into a perfect and amazing relationship with him. Romans chapter 10 verse 14 through 15 says this, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? How can anyone preach unless they are sent as it is written how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. I have a question for you this morning. Do you have beautiful feet? Do you have beautiful feet? You know what I'm saying. Are your feet beautiful? Are your feet carrying the gospel of peace everywhere you go? Are you sharing the love of Jesus? Are you ready in season and out of season to speak God's life and love to anyone who will listen and receive? Do you have beautiful feet? You can. And as a, as a believer in Jesus Christ, as, as the church of Jesus Christ, we must. We have to. We don't have an option in fact, because of what God has done in our lives, we should be driven, compelled, as Paul says, to go and share. Easter is just four weeks away. Four Sundays from now is Easter Sunday. I want to encourage you. I'm trying to think how to do, even do this different. Because every Easter we're like, hey, make sure you invite someone to church, Right? Invite someone to join you on Easter Sunday, and, and, and please do that. But, but here's what I'm actually asking. Would you invite someone to Jesus? They don't have to be in this room to receive Jesus. Would you go and present an invitation by way of your life and invite someone into a relationship with Jesus? It's not someone else's job. You might think, well, it's the evangelist's job. No, they just do it a lot better because they have a gift in that, right? Billy Graham. But that doesn't mean we put that off. Would you recall and just in your own heart remember what it is that God has done for you? That should be plenty of motivation for you to want to share that with someone else, to be able to say, hey, can I just tell you about what God has done in my life. Would you invite someone to Jesus? And then invite them to church. Why? Because people who come to Jesus for the first time need to grow. They need to be taught. They need to be trained. And, and as Paul says in the book of Ephesians, this is the place where that happens. It's the place where we fellowship together. We worship together. We raise our hands together. We're equipped because we're all ministers of the gospel. Four weeks away. In fact, at the hub, and I'm probably in some of the seat backs in front of you, there's business cards 
size card that uh, has information about our church. Now listen, it's just an information card. It's not an invitation card. You are the invitation. Can I say that again? You are the invitation. That's just the information to say, hey, now come join me. This is the information. This is how you get there. Would you be praying this week? In fact, right now, would you, would you just take a second and would you think of one person, just one person, maybe that you know that you're supposed to share with, but you've been maybe a little nervous. You're like, I'm not sure. Would you start asking God to empower you this week to share the gospel, to share the good news? I invite Jacques to come forward and play. We're going to receive communion. We're going to close in just a minute. We're going to seal this time with communion, and here's what I want to encourage you to do. This is a reminder for us, by the way, that we've been reconciled to God because of the blood and the, and the body of Jesus Christ, that was, which was shed. It was by his sacrifice at Calvary that we have been made whole. But it's also a reminder for us that we need to be reconciled to each other. And so as the men come forward, as you would receive the bread and the cup, would you hold those and before you partake, would you ask God to stir your heart and maybe, maybe he needs to reveal to you, maybe it's not such a huge revelation of someone, maybe even in this room, who you need to, because it depends on you, be reconciled to, be at peace with. Would you commit to say, you know what, I will go, I will take the step I will allow my feet to be moved from the, by the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace to go and be reconciled to my brother or my sister. Maybe it's someone who's not here. Would you purpose in your heart and your life to make sure to seek them out and initiate? He says, as much as it depends on you, it's not always going to be possible. But if it's not possible, make sure that it's not because of you. Amen? Let's pray together and we'll pass the trace. Father God, thank you that you did the work of reaching us. Jesus, that you came and because of your sacrifice, we are reconciled to you and to the Father. But not only that, because of your blood, because of your body that was broken and beaten for us, that we are reconciled to each other. So God, I pray that you would continue that work of reconciliation where the enemy would want to separate and divide. God, that you would bring us together. Holy Spirit, remind us of everything that Jesus taught and the way that we're called to live our lives for you. In Jesus' name, amen. As, as you receive the bread and cup, you can partake whenever you're ready as, as you finish praying and seeking the Lord. And then once you've partaken, once you've received the, the, the bread and the cup, would you stand together and we'll close in worship this morning.